Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 122. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 and follow with some thoughts about God and his girlfriend, not girlfriend, Asherah. If the book of Ezekiel was a movie, this episode's portion would be teased to all get out in the previews. Chapters 8 through 11 present a detailed vision of pagan idolatrous rituals that, in all probability, were practiced in the temple during the dark days when idolatry ran amok amongst the virtuous, and it concludes with the explosive departure of the divine chariot from the sacred confines. But it's not just a sneak peek or a flashback, it's a full-on vision. Cheskel's sitting at home, minding his own business in the sixth year on the fifth day of the sixth month, and his mates, the elders of Judah, were having a lovely sit and probably a spot of tea when, quote, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. As I looked, there was a figure that had the appearance of fire. From what appeared as his loins down, he was fire. And from his loins up, his appearance was resplendent and had the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the hair of my head. A spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the Pnimit gate that faces north, that was the site of the infuriating image that provokes fury. For the rest of the chapter, Yechezkel describes what he saw in Jerusalem, keeping in mind, of course, that he's physically in Babylon. But what he describes in detail is the temple facility, including specific people that he saw in the temple, such as the Azanyahu ben Shafan. He makes a couple of appearances in Yechezkel's head trip. But this is not one of those pleasant head trips where you see rainbows and dancing koala bears and a very large anime-eyed unicorn leading you in song. This is the site of, quote, the infuriating image that provokes fury. The temple will be destroyed, if you haven't figured that out by now, and here's why. For starters, the infuriating image Yechezkel is referring to is arguably an idol, and as he makes his way through the building, in each space, another outrage. Idols, incense offerings, women bewailing the fertility god Tammuz, men prostrating themselves before the sun. But there will be a calling to account. Chapter 9 introduces the image of six men, each with a club in hand, and a seventh clothed in linen with a writing case. God then instructs the scribe to, quote, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who moan and groan because of all the abominations that are committed in it. You can guess what comes next. Hezkel reacts quite strongly to this, but God is unmoved. Quote, I, in turn, will show no pity or compassion. I will give them their deserts. Chapter 10 returns us to the divine chariot, otherwise known as God's UFO. Yechezkel describes the hovercraft in less detail this time, but we see some of its functions, particularly when the man in linen is commanded to collect some white-hot coals from the hands of the four-faced and four-winged Kruvim. As you can surmise, these coals will not be used for making s'mores. 
This vision, in all its glorious and gory detail, is meant to send a twofold message to the exile community. And remember that there were two exiles. The first was in 597 BCE when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar took Judean king Jehoiachin and the elites, Yehezkel among them, to Babylon. The second hasn't happened yet, so the folks in Babylon don't know that it's going to get much, much worse. So when Yehezkel describes the temple in Jerusalem and then unfolds this walking dead scenario, he is intending to say that message number one, obviously, repent, for when God pours out his wrath, it's very bad. But more importantly, message number two, dispel all hopes of a quick return to the land of Israel. There is nothing to go home to. Jerusalem will be reduced to a charnel house. This image is driven home in the beginning of chapter 11 when Yehezkel addresses the 25 men who, quote, plan iniquity and plot wickedness in this city. And he names two of them, Yaazaniah ben Azur and Pelatyahu ben Benayahu, who smugly reply that, quote, there is no need now to build houses. This city is the pot and we are the meat, meaning that the walls of the city will protect the people inside like the pot keeps the stew safe. But Yehezkel replies, no, the corpses that will pile up, that will be the meat, and you all will be taken into exile. As Yehezkel continues to unfold his vision, Platyahu just keels over and dies, which makes quite the impression on Yehezkel, who also falls to the ground, begging God not to destroy everyone. God assures him that the exile will be hard and awful, but it will end, and the Jews will eventually return, but only those that follow God's path, for God, quote, will remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. And on that upbeat note, God's hovercraft departs, and Yehezkel returns to Babylon. Here endeth the lesson. Ezekiel saw the wheel. This is the wheel he said he saw. We could go down that trippy, trippy road again, but instead I'd like to follow a thread that comes up right at the beginning of this episode's portion, Yechezkel's Temple Tour, which I guess is kind of trippy. Anyway, quote, In the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, I was sitting at home, and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, and there the hand of God fell upon me. And now I wonder, what, what day is that? It's such a specific identification. And thanks to various calendar converters, we can actually calculate the date of Yehezkel's second vision, September 17th, 592 BCE. And so we go on this four-stop madcap tour of Shlomo's temple, except it's like a tour of the upside-downs version of Shlomo's temple, because instead of seeing the temple in its glory, we see how it has been corrupted. First stop, the north gate in the open square. Yehezkel finds the infuriating image which is probably an Asherah pole. Asherah is the Canaanite goddess of love and was considered to be the mistress or consort of El, the highest god in the Canaanite pantheon. Then, within three verses, second stop, Yehezkel literally bursts through a wall. 
to discover a secret room where 70 elders of Israel are worshiping Egyptian gods who are painted on the wall with incense and censers. The odd thing about this scene is that the elders were carrying on in this manner because they were convinced that, quote, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has abandoned the country. But if that was the case, then why carry on in secret? Why not worship Egyptian gods openly? I guess because they were actually more concerned about being found out by their fellow Jews instead of by God. Hashtag sad. Then we move on back to the North Gate for the third stop, where we find a crush of women wailing and crying. Somewhere deep down in my heart, I still love you. <laughs> Tammuz is the Hebrew form of the name of the Sumerian god Dumuzi the deity of spring vegetation. The seeming death of all vegetation in the Middle East during the hot, dry summer months was, it was believed, caused by Tammuz's death and descent into the underworld. During that time, his followers would weep, mourning his death. September 17th is still well within the hot, dry period. In the spring, however, Tammuz would reemerge victoriously from the underworld and bring with him life-giving rains. The fourth and final stop is the inner courtyard where Yehezkel finds 25 Levitical priests prostrating toward the east as they worship the sun. In doing so, that is, facing east, their backs are to the temple, literally and figuratively. These four instances of idolatrous worship within the temple confines exposes the four different levels of the Jews' debauchery. The Asherah pole in the public square, was erected for public consumption. The rabble, mostly men. The 70 elders and the Levites represent the elites, both political and religious. And then Tammuz worship for the women. But there's another way to slice up this pie. The second, third, and fourth are straight up infidelity. The Jews have gone a-wandering away from God and into the arms of foreign gods, Egyptian gods, Tammuz, and the sun. But where the lines aren't so clear is with the first stop with Asherah. Asherah was the goddess for the masses. She went viral. Asherah is mentioned directly or indirectly some 40 times in the Tanakh and featured in eight books. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Judges, the Book of Kings, the Second Book of Chronicles, and the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah or Micha. Deuteronomy 16 states, quote, You shall not set up a sacred post, any kind of pole, beside the altar of the Lord your God that you may make. From the text, it's clear that the sacred post is actually a living tree, but there are other instances where the Asherah pole is just that, a pole made of wood. The judge Gidon cuts one down in Judges chapter 6 and smashes the altar of Baal beside it. In 2 Kings, King Manasseh placed an Asherah pole in the temple, but King Yoshia removed it. Yoshia also kicked out the temple prostitutes. <laughs> destroyed the mountaintop altars outside of Jerusalem, and rediscovered the book of monotheistic law that became Deuteronomy. Incidentally, it probably didn't help the northern kingdom's reputation much in Judahite author text that an Asherah pole featured in Yahweh's sanctuary in Samaria, just saying. But if you timeline these incidents starting in Exodus all the way through to Second Chronicles, it seems that Asherah has been part of the Jewish experience more than she hasn't which would explain why the prophets in Judea and priests in the temple railed against Asherah constantly. Because if you look more closely at Genesis, 
you'll discover that the patriarchs had a much more inclusive notion of what Jewish practice was. Avraham was comfortable with the sacred oak tree of Moreh being close as it was next to the altar he erected to God. His grandson Yaakov erected matzevot, or standing stones, a common Near Eastern cultic practice dating back to the 4th millennium BCE. And we don't have to get into all the stuff the matriarchs were up to in the privacy of their own tents. Because the folk religion or family religion practiced by a significant portion of Jews throughout the Jewish experience in Canaan was Canaanite in its origins and always polytheistic-ish. And surprise, surprise, or to the shock and dismay of many, the archaeology supports this assertion. There are paintings, drawings, pendants, plaques, pottery, possibly clay pillar figurines, cult stands, and inscriptions. The inscriptions are the most puzzling and the most damning. Archaeologists discovered an 8th century combination of iconography and inscriptions at Kuntilet Ajrud in the northern Sinai Desert, where they found two pithoi, or large storage jars. These jars had three anthropomorphic figures and several inscriptions on them. The inscriptions refer not only to Yahweh, but to El and Baal, and two include the phrases Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah, and Yahweh of Teman and his Asherah. And then that penetrates my mind, and then the, the whole Big Bang yeah, you know what I mean? And I have to admit that when I first heard about this interesting wrinkle during the second wave of my biblical studies, I was shocked, but not surprised. I always had the inkling that, you know, the two Jews, three opinions thing was not an exclusively contemporary phenomenon. I saw it play out enough times during the Jewish wander years post-Exodus. I was aware, even as a middle schooler, of the doctrinal differences between Orthodox and Ultra-Orthodox, and between Hasid and non-Hasid, and in between the many Hasidic sects, and between the Conservative and Reform, and between the Conservative and Reform and the Orthodox. And I was also aware of the power plays, and how power plays out, and how sheer numbers sometimes doesn't carry the day. So you often find yourself in a situation where a small minority opinion holds sway over how the majority practices. And as George Orwell said, he who controls the past controls the future. So it wasn't surprising that ancient Jews would be similarly divided on some of these pretty fundamental issues. And yet, I once thought that there was solid consensus around the whole monotheism thing. But as I discovered in episode 69... The Tanakh is not exclusive about monotheism in the way that we generally think. Asherah is never alluded to anywhere as God's girlfriend, but the Tanakh does work within a spectrum that ranges from monolatry, from the Greek for single worship, which recognizes the existence of many gods, but believers only worship one, to henotheism, from the Greek for one god, where believers worship one god alone, without denying that others may worship different gods with equal validity, to eventually reaching monotheism, from the Greek for single god, asserting the existence of one god and one god alone. But here's the thing. All the talk about idolatry, and we're nowhere near the end of such talk. Methinks the prophet doth protest too much. Here's what I mean. Well, you know, one doesn't talk so much about how bad a thing is, constantly reiterating its faults and its foibles, unless you're navel deep into self-talk. That is, you're trying to convince yourself that what you're condemning is really terrible. <laughs> it sucks, man. I'm reminded of a scene from my time in Jerusalem in the previous century 
when periodically young yeshiva boys would wander out to the frontiers of their ultra-Orthodox enclaves to harass vehicular traffic on Shabbat, which is a gross violation of the day. That these young men would throw stones at those cars would also constitute a violation, but that's a discussion for another time. But they would stand there at the police cordons, shouting at the top of their lungs, Shabbos! And I'd wonder, as I stood there witnessing this spectacle, who are they shouting at? The cars that drive by? They know it's Shabbat. Shabbat follows Yom Shishi, Friday. So... Could one say that their yelling of Shabbos is not meant to somehow convince the drivers who might have forgotten what day it was, but a reminder to the shouter that it's Shabbat? Because one could indeed wonder how such a violation of Shabbat is possible in a world created by God, governed by Torah and mitzvot, in the land of Israel, in the city where God's temple stood. Could such a thing be possible? He doth protest because reality does not square with his reality. I think the same thing is true for the prophets. What Jews did in their homes and with their friends much of the time did not jibe with how the prophets conceived Jews would behave. But I think one of the hallmarks of adulthood is the ability to tolerate a certain level of dissonant behavior. After all, we happily consume art produced by terrible people. Jello pudding pops, frozen pudding on a stick. One can justifiably wonder what might have happened had the Asherah poles remained in the private realm, a personal affectation, an object of quiet veneration at home. Perhaps it would not have garnered the kind of negative attention the prophets heap upon it. As I said earlier, the Tanakh is of many minds, but when you take your love for Asherah public and parade it about with great fanfare at the north gate of the temple, them's fightin' words. A prophet would be remiss if he let that one go, especially when, according to the going theology, worshipping God and dot 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 could very well lead to ruin. So, no. God does not have a girlfriend, and if you insist that he does, or pretend that he does, or talk about it incessantly and publicly, or if you're one of the 70 elders in Plenum, or a Kohen, or a Levite, and you make some kind of public declaration, Yechezkel, or Yermiyahu, or Yeshayahu, or any other prophet will have to smack you down properly for that. But hey, you know, what happens on the streets is not the same as what happens in between the sheets, and the prophets get around, but not that much. So in the end, I guess it comes down to subtlety, another hallmark of adulthood. Can you be discreet about your Asherah? Can you keep your affection for Tammuz to yourself? If yes, well, then I guess that's your business. But if you flaunt it, you best be prepared to deal with the blowback. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 123 when we continue in the book of Ezekiel with chapters 12 through 15.